And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. Hello everyone and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. And I hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where we took a look at Dawn of the Monsters from 13AM Games and WayForward Technologies, the very cool indie daikaiju Kyodai Hero beat-em-up game that I uh, have been playing on my Nintendo Switch. Uh, update on that. I'm on the last stage in this game. This is this is a really, really fun game, so please check that out. Please go listen to the episode if you haven't listened to it, and check that game out if you have a system that can play it. Today, we are going to be jumping back over to Ultraman. I know, we've covered a little bit of Ultraman uh, in the last few months, and that's no different here. We're going to be taking a look at episodes 32 and 33 of the original Ultraman series, featuring uh, two pretty um, you know, well-known, I'd say, or at least... Foes we've heard from recently. Let's just leave it at that. And uh, we'll get right into that. But first, we do have some news. So first and foremost, mentioned it last time out. Put this up on the Twitter and the YouTube. Can confirm Fathom Events is screening Godzilla Tokyo SOS on March 22nd. Go out there and get those tickets. I'm going to be traveling, so I'm not going to be able to see it personally. A little disappointed, but, you know, I didn't get to see GXMG last year so. Not too bad that I can't see Tokyo SOS when I already didn't see the first one. Uh, check out FathomEvents.com for locations. Uh, I'm a little bit spoiled. I've got several locations here around me that do the Fathom Events, but check that out. You can find, they'll, they'll let you just put in a zip code. You can find a location of a theater, hopefully, near you. So go and check that out on the big screen. In other movie news, The Lake, which is a Thai film, is available as of this month here in the U.S., The official description goes like this. A gigantic and bloodthirsty monster emerges from a lake after its egg is stolen and unleashes its fury on a town's inhabitants, leaving a trail of destruction and death in its wake. The town of Duane Khan, now cut off from the outside world, must mobilize its officials and citizens, as well as a group of scientists that are in town conducting research, to catch this predator before it's too late. Now, the physical monster effects in the trailers look real sharp. Uh, definitely should appeal to Daikaiju fans. Looks very creepy. Looks pretty scary, honestly, too. So I'm, I'm very eager to see this. Movie can be streamed on Apple TV. It can be purchased via iTunes. Or you can buy it on Blu-ray via the Epic Pictures website, which is epic dash pictures.com that's the outfit that is releasing this film we've seen a few trailers for this in the last couple of months it uh this looks like it could be a good time so i'll have to see if i can pick that one up and finally in mockbuster news ape versus mecha ape the sequel to ape versus monster is set to be released on march 24th on video on demand the official synopsis 
goes, recognizing the destructive power of its captive giant ape, the military makes its own battle-ready AI mecha ape. But its first practical test goes horribly wrong, leaving the military no choice but to release the imprisoned giant ape to stop the colossal robot before it destroys downtown Chicago. Okay, the film stars Tom Arnold, although uh, no word on whether he's playing the ape or the mecha ape. So, uh, you know, we'll have to see on that one, I guess. Uh, no word on a physical release, although these Asylum movies... Oh, did I mention this is from the Asylum? Yeah, this, this is an Asylum movie. Uh, they usually do get physical releases, so more on that as I hear more on it. Um, we have seen the poster. I mean, the, the Asylum posters are always fantastic. I'm, I, I'm, I make no statements about the quality of the film, but the poster is certainly nice. Uh, and as far as Ape versus Monster, stay tuned. And that's all I'll say on that. So, if you've got any news or notes you would like to share, go ahead and send them to me, EarthDestructionDirective at Yahoo.com, and we'll talk about it here on the show. You can also pass them along on Facebook or Twitter, Discord, or YouTube. I got There's all sorts of ways to get in touch with me. Uh, so, uh, looking forward to uh, seeing what comes up, and, uh, you know, we'll see what any news breaks. There's always seems to be something new in the world of Daikaiju out there, so. All right, we are going to take a quick break, and we will get back with the first of not one, but two episodes of Ultraman, right here on Earth Destruction Directive. Hi, I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren of the Rad Adventures Network. We're a married couple who enjoy great stories of all kinds, including adventures, mysteries, science fiction, and fantasy. Please join us for a variety of podcasts focused on a range of pop culture topics. Trekker Talk is about 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the comic Trekker by writer and artist Ron Randall. It's a blend of classic sci-fi adventures and noir mysteries set in a retro future. Xenozoic Xenophiles is about the comic Xenozoic Tales by writer and artist Mark Schultz. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs. Warlord Worlds covers the many comics of writer and artist Mike Grell, including The Warlord, John Sable, Green Arrow, and The Legion of Superheroes. Sensational Sluice, where we talk about favorite mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. Fantastic Fantasies, where we share our favorite fantasy films and books. And Amazing Adventures, where we discuss action-packed adventure stories. Listen on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or visit RadAdventuresNetwork.com to find all of our shows and links to our social media pages. That's Rad, R-A-D, which is short for Ruth and Darren. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman Episode 32, The Endless Counterattack, subtitled Introducing Scorching Monster Zumbalar, originally aired February 19th, 1967 on Tokyo Broadcast System. Our writer is Keisuke Fujikawa. Um, Fujikawa has countless credits for tokusatsu and anime. Uh, specifically for Ultraman, he wrote episodes Cry the Mummy, which we covered uh, way back there, featuring the reanimated mummy and the sphinx monster Dodongo. And he also wrote the episode Passport to Infinity, which featured the strange multidimensional creature Bolton. So uh, responsible for the creation of uh, that very well-known monster. Our director is... Um, Toshitsugu Suzuki, uh, one of the most prolific directors actually on Ultra 7, believe it or not, and uh, did also direct show episodes for shows such as Mirror Man, Ultraman Ace, and 
Fireman. Now, for Ultraman, this is funny. He actually directs both this episode and the next one. So he gets two episodes in a row. I guess they had him on set uh, for a couple of weeks. Uh, but yeah, you'll, you'll see his name a lot in Ultra 7 if you take a look at the directing credits. Our synopsis is adapted from ultra.fandom.com and goes a little something like this. Patty, a member of the Science Patrol India HQ, is on vacation in Japan, and Hayata uses trickery to ensure that he is the one to escort her, much to the chagrin of Ide and Arashi and the amusement of Captain Muramatsu. But Patty's vacation is cut short when a strange fire breaks out in a forested area near Miyanomori, which is being developed. The SSSP are deployed, Ide and Arashi fighting the fire from the jet VTOL using an extinguishing fluid, while Hayata and Patty investigate on foot. The pair find the water in a nearby river to be boiling, and then experience an earthquake, although they do escape unharmed. Soon the cause of the destruction is revealed, the monster Zumbalar, awakened by the destruction of his home from the development. The kaiju emerges and turns several sites into a blazing inferno, with the forest literally bursting into flames just from his presence. Eventually, he makes his way to a chemical plant where he is met by the SSSP. Unable to stop Zumbalar with small arms fire from Hayata and Patty, the SSSP can only mitigate the damage from fires as the monster retreats. With his path of travel putting Zumbalar en route to Tokyo, JSDF deploys armored divisions to halt his advance, joined by the SSSP. But the JSDF tanks are overmatched by the intense heat which Zumbalar generates, melting the armor into slag. The jet VTOLs do not fare much better, with their freezing bullet weapon failing to slow down Zumbalar. On the ground, Patty, injured from the previous encounter with the monster, agrees with Hayata that she cannot support a frontal assault, giving Hayata the chance to change into Ultraman. Zumbalar's temper seems to match his temperature as he charges directly at Ultraman, sweeping the hero off his feet with his tail and then using his tail to attack Ultraman's eyes. The battle gets even uglier as Ultraman pins Zumbalar's jaws closed with his hands and then slams the monster's head repeatedly into the ground. Ultraman then presses Zumbalar above his head and slams him to the earth, finally finishing the monster off with the specium beam. Afterward, as the SSSP flies over Tokyo, the team muses on the cost done to the natural world for the creation of their modern city. Fuji hopes that Patty will enjoy the rest of her vacation, to which Patty replies that she's already seen three of Japan's specialties. Earthquakes, monsters, and Ultraman. Now, as the name implies, this is an action-packed episode, so let's get right into the notes. The beginning of this episode is among the funniest moments in the entire series so far. Hayata, under the gaze of fair play, tricking the other members of the SSSP to ensure that he will get to escort the young lady from the India HQ is just plain funny, but also gives us some insight into Hayata himself. Often in this series... Hayata is the straight man to Ide and Arashi, but here, his smarts are the focal point. Given that Ultraman is the dominant personality in this series, I do have to wonder, what is his motivation? My personal theory is that Patty stirs feelings in Hayata's subconscious that Ultraman can sense and decides to investigate to continue to learn more about humanity. It is plain that Hayata does care for Patty in some capacity, and her for him but we never find out if they have a history or ever meet again. For now, we can simply take it as we get it here and leave the rest to the fanfic writers. Speaking of Patty, she is played by Japanese actress Anu Marie, who sometimes is credited as Anne Marie, 
who would later pop up in both Ultra 7 and the original Kamen Rider. From her name, I assume that her character is supposed to be Indian, despite being played by a Japanese actress. The character is mostly portrayed as a competent field agent who continues to press on in her duties despite being injured. The plot does get a little muddled near the time for the big fight, as she has to be shuffled off screen so Hayata can transform, and it's not really clear how she was injured or what she's doing. Still, Patty is a positive representation of a female SSSP agent, which I mostly note because Subaraya was not always as progressive with their handling of women's roles as, say, Toho was in this period. The story of the episode is, except for the visit from Patty, fairly standard monster on the loose fare. Modern life encroaches on the domain of nature, not maliciously in this case, and some long dormant threat from the natural world awakens, unleashing itself on the unsuspecting populace. What I enjoyed about the episode was that, using this basic framework, Fujikawa makes several subtle choices which enhance the threat being presented. The seemingly spontaneous combustion of the forest from the intense heat radiating off from the then-as-of-yet-unrevealed Zumbalar is a memorable and striking story beat. Similarly, having the SSSP being called in on a civil rescue operation to douse the flames is a great turn as well, as I am always a fan of the SSSP or any team on an Ultra show taking part in defense or civil activities beyond simply fighting monsters. Now, speaking of the monster, Zumbalar, the Scorching Monster, lives up to his fiery title. Modified from the Gavadon Beta suit, Zumbalar is much more menacing than that monster. His horns and back spines are cast in a tr- translucent orange material, and they are lit from the inside. It's a simple but very useful effect of making them glow with thermal energy. The contrasting color also helps him stand out more than Gavadon, who did look a little plain. Zumbalar is a ferocious fighter, reminded me of the monster Goldon from a few episodes back, and that we had a quadruped who still fought tooth and nail against Ultraman. Evidently, he made enough of an impression that he was brought back for the American-produced series Ultraman the Ultimate Hero, aka Ultraman Powered, which naturally never actually aired in the United States, but that's neither here nor there. And listeners will also recall that Zumbalar showed up in the finale of the comic Trials of Ultraman, as covered on episode 114 of this show. The special effects around Zumbalar are well done as usual, with the most noteworthy portions being the huge amounts of fire all over the set. The image of the forest literally bursting into flames at Zumbalar's approach is quite a sight, and while it is not the most complicated effect, in the narrative, it is very successful and strongly puts over Zumbalar as, in fact, the scorching monster. The other heat-related effects which I liked were the exploding and melting tanks. Not a new effect, for sure. Subaraya and company did this for Godzilla's atomic breath several times before this episode. But it is a classic which is always nice to see, and again, serves the story well, given our monster. One last portion of the show which I would like to mention is the epilogue, where the SSSP gives Patty an aerial tour of Tokyo. The characters freestyle that while Tokyo was a modern city, the cost of development and modernization is a disruption of the natural world, brought into sharp focus via kaiju. Most kaiju fans know and understand this theme quite well. What struck me upon this particular viewing was that this same theme is still not only true, but still also being used by the Ultra series today. Episode 10 of Ultraman Decker from 2022 addresses this exact theme, although taken in a different context. The other portion of the epilogue, which I absolutely treasured, 
is Patty's summary of her vacation. When the SSSP say that they apologize for vacation being ruined, Patty responds she saw lots of traditional Japanese sites, namely Earthquakes, Monsters, and Ultraman. Coming from a Japanese show, I find this response so terrifically awesome that it pops me every single time I hear it. It is so wonderful. That was why, you may recall, I put this up as the teaser for this episode. Loyal listener and friend of the show, Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network has, as in the past, sent in some pre-feedback on these episodes, so here's a professor's take on the endless counterattack. Luke, as soon as I heard that you were going to be covering another two episodes of Ultraman, I ran straight to the DVD rack. I hope I can get this to you before you record as pre-feedback. Well, got it in under the wire there, Professor. On episode 32, The Endless Counterattack, I was shocked to learn that there was another woman in the Science Patrol other than Fuji, even though we had to go to India to find her. I thought both firefighting scenes were among the strongest action scenes this season. The effects were solid. The miniature work of the chemical plant going up was quite good also. Although I don't think the overall story had much to it, but it was action-packed, and overall I liked the message of this one. Just because you go on vacation, it doesn't mean you won't get called into work. Hear, hear, Professor. Hear, hear. <laughs> now, overall, the endless counterattack, it's a no-nonsense monster-in-the-loose story, albeit one which acquits itself well in that context. A well-executed monster and a fun guest star make this one a bit more memorable than some other monster-in-the-loose episodes, even if it never quite reaches some of the highest highs of that style. Very much worth checking out. Now, if you would like to watch The Endless Counterattack, you do have a couple of options. You can pick up the original series on Blu-ray from Mill Creek, which I uh, do believe when you buy it now still will include the Movie Spree digital copies, whatever that's worth at this point. I want to say that if you buy those older sets, they'll still have the code, and you'll still be able to redeem the code on Movie Spree. But, of course, you can't buy them directly off Movie Spree anymore for digitals. Now, if you if you want to stream it, uh, the episode can be streamed for free, a bit with ads on Shout Factory TV. Uh, there's a lot of Ultraman content on Shout Factory TV, which is uh, streaming with ads, so you can check it out there as well. So now I throw it to you, the listener. What do you think? Have you seen The Endless Counterattack? Do you like the monster Zumbalar? What about, um, you know, Patty and other agents from around the globe? Do you think she had an accurate uh, uh, representation of Japan saying it was uh, Earthquakes, Monsters, and Ultraman? Uh, hit me up. EarthDestructionDirective at Yahoo.com. We'll talk about it here on the show. All right, we're going to take a quick break and come back with our second episode of Ultraman right here on Earth Destruction Directive. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing, not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultra- Of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller 
is at the height of his creative and artistic powers, and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. Okay, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman Episode 33, The Forbidden Words, subtitled featuring Alien Mephilus, originally aired on February 26, 1967 on Tokyo Broadcasting System. Our writer is Tetsuo Kinjo. We have mentioned Kinjo before on this show, one of the key creators of the Ultra series, one of the creators of Ultra Q, head writer of both Ultraman and Ultra 7, and of course, the beloved Ultra Mecha King Joe is named in his honor. And of course, King Joe uh, died very young, uh, very tragic. We've uh, we've talked about Mr. King Joe before on the show. And our director, as I said uh, previously, is uh, Toshitsugu Suzuki, who directed both this episode and the previous one. Our synopsis is once again adapted from Ultra.Fandom.com and goes like this. While watching an air show, Hayata, Fuji, and Fuji's young brother, Satoru, witness a tanker ship being moved through the air and then are kidnapped by a mysterious force. The SSSP tracks their vehicle, along with several jets also taken, to low Earth orbit, but are unable to find any trace of the three missing people. The next day, the SSSP is called out to investigate the appearance of a giant in the middle of Tokyo. Only this is no run-of-the-mill giant. It is Fuji! The SSSP agent does not seem to have a will of her own, and is instead the servant of the alien Mephilus, who has giganticized Fuji as a demonstration of his power. His demands are simple. Give him control of the Earth. The assembled SSSP and police refuse, and Mephilus creates illusions of the aliens Balton, Zayrab, and Kamer as further demonstration of his power, and forces Fuji to smash a building to rubble. In his ship... Mephilus attempts to convince Satoru to give him ownership of the planet Earth, offering an exchange to let humanity live on another world that is without war and sickness. However, Satoru steadfastly refuses, saying that he is an Earthling and will only be happy living on Earth. Hayata mocks Mephilus, saying that no human will agree to his terms, and readies to change into Ultraman with the Beta Capsule. Mephilus, though, freezes Hayata in place before he can transform. The Science Patrol learn the location of alien Mephilus's starship and mount an attack on the malicious alien's craft. Mephilus retaliates, but is forced to retreat, growing giant. Science Patrol infiltrate the ship and rescue Fuji and Satoru, but cannot move the immobilized Hayata and are forced to leave him behind. The rumbling of the assault on the ship causes Hayata to fall over, striking the Beta Capsule and transforming him into Ultraman. Ultraman faces off against Mephilus, however... The two combatants prove evenly matched. Every attack which Ultraman attempts, Mephilus is able to counter. Finally, Mephilus calls off their battle, saying that there is no point to continue. Mephilus accepts his defeat by Earth and the child Satoru, but vows that one day a human will agree to hand the Earth over to him. With this warning, Mephilus disappears. Hayata then rejoins the other SSSP members and congratulates Satoru for his courage. 
A lot to unpack on this episode, so let's get into the notes. Alien Mephilus is one of the most intriguing opponents we have seen Ultraman face so far. He seeks to conquer Earth, true enough. But his methods are much different from other aliens, such as Balton and Zarab. He uses deceit and trickery to essentially try to steal the Earth. Even his name, Mephilus, it's a play on the German Mephistopheles, the demon from Faust with whom the titular character makes his deal. That is much what Mephilus is trying to do with Satoru. Make a deal with him, which appears to be in the favor of humanity, but ultimately only serves Mephilus. Mephilus is very much the opposite number of what we more popularly today gets referred to as the Dark Mirror of Ultraman. Beyond the physical appearance and skills, the two aliens' opinions of humanity inform this relationship. Ultraman, who loves humans and all of humanity, outright mocks Mephilus for his belief that humanity could be tempted to give up their home planet. This leads to a great exchange, as Mephilus asks Ultraman, in Hayata's form, is he human or an alien? Hayata simply responds, I am both. But beyond the in-universe explanation, wherein Hayata and Ultraman are in fact sharing one body, this is another instance of Eji Tsuburaya's Roman Catholicism being reflected in this series. Christian listeners will know that Jesus Christ was both fully human and fully divine, driving home this allegory. Furthermore, the setup here of the obviously demonic Mephilus being dismissed by Ultraman after tempting Satoru recalls, in spirit if not in details, the temptation of Christ. It's also interesting that Mephilus was designed by longtime Subaraya sculptor Tol Narita to not look as threatening as the other aliens. I'm totally speculating here, but this makes me think of the idea that the devil can take many forms in his attempts to tempt and trick humanity. Now, naturally, I must mention, of course, that Mephilus is one of the opponents battled by Ultraman in the recent film Shin Ultraman, and he similarly uses dishonesty to trick humanity. In the film, Mephilus is also able to take on a human form, all the better to appear friendly and non-threatening to the populace of Earth. Of course, in Shin Ultraman, Mephilus is much more successful since he chooses for his targets people who are much, much more easily swayed by temptation, namely elected government officials. Anyway, <laughs> Mephilus is a, a very notable opponent from Ultraman and stands out amongst the other aliens. Beyond the allegorical content, there are several other memorable turns in this episode which I think make it stand out. As I said, Mephilus' method of conquering the Earth is almost outlandishly simple on the surface, but if you really think about it, it probably has a better chance of succeeding than an actual physical invasion. His demonstration of power by creating illusions of the past aliens is a nice touch as well, including the first color appearance of the alien Kemmer, the first time a foe from Ultra Q has actually reappeared in this series, something which uh, we'll see character monsters and aliens reappear many times down the line in the Ultra series, but that's the first time we get it here. And the final battle with Ultraman and Mephilus going tit-for-tat back and forth, it's unique, as is the fact that the battle ends inconclusively, with Mephilus simply leaving rather than continuing what he saw as a pointless fight. As he says earlier in the episode, I detest violence. 
One odd thing about that fight is that in the Ultraman video game, which we covered for the Game Boy a long time ago, but also the Japanese Super Nintendo version, you do in fact fight Mephilus, and that's how the fight ends. You'll remember in that game you had to wear opponents down until their life bar said finish, and then hit them with the specium beam? When you do that against Mephilus, he blocks the beam with his beam, and then... It's in Japanese, but one can assume that he has the same conversation that he has here, saying that one day someone will give him the earth and he'll return and he disappears. So that that's a very obviously important part of the Mephilus story. They even kept it in the adaptation. Now, of course, the biggest standout moment of the episode is Giantess Fuji. Even in a series as creatives, and let's face it, sometimes as outlandish as Ultraman, we have never had a situation like this before where a member of the heroes is, quite literally, turned into a giant threat. Besides being an amusingly out-there sequence, seeing Fuji standing amongst the tall buildings, I'm pretty sure that more than one viewer found themselves strangely interested in a toweringly tall Fuji. I don't know if that particular take was a thing in 1967, but given as this was produced almost a decade after Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, I suspect that this was not accidental. Similarly. Mephilus makes Asami into a giantess in Shin Ultraman, although as if to hammer home the alternative appeal of that scene, she wears a skirt suit in the film rather than Fuji, who wears her duty uniform. The special effects this time out cover a wide variety of purposes. The ship being pulled through the air, or Ide and Arashi investigating in space, are well-done sequences. They're not altogether different from what we've seen before. They're not standout. They don't have a ton of detail in them. Uh, but they do work. The levitating ship reminds me specifically of Bolton levitating the tanks back in the aforementioned episode Passport to Infinity, which we covered back on episode 61. Now, similarly, the assault on Mephilus' ship by the SSSP is like scenes we have seen previously with the jet VTOL swooping in on attack runs. Inside Mephilus' ship, he alternately contains Fuji and Satoru in a stasis field, simple effect achieved with uh, putting the uh, actors on wires and an overcranked camera. With the addition of the classic alien flying sound effect, which most viewers will recognize as King Ghidorah's flight sound. I combine that with the alien cameos, and then, you know, Hiroku Sakurai getting to smash a couple buildings as a giant, you have an episode which gets a lot out of its effects, even if it's not a straight-up what we might call special effects episode. Professor Allen sent in some pre-feedback about this episode as well. Now, episode 33, The Forbidden Words, had a story going on, solid kids-level science fiction. The outer space scenes lacked in effects, but made up for that with sheer creepiness. As soon as I saw giant-sized Fuji, memories came back. I remembered a number of scenes from this one, all of them creepy, but that scene with Fuji was by far the most memorable. And it was nice to finally see a human destroy some miniatures. I don't know where this one ranks among the fandom, but I thought this episode was terrific. I'm going to cut in here. Uh, yeah, I, I do believe that, in general, this is one of the higher-regarded episodes of the of the original series, uh, Professor. I know I, I've always thought of it that way. I know Mephilus keeps coming back, and they said he, they brought him back for Shin Ultraman and essentially reused large portions of the story, so I would imagine it's, uh, it is pretty highly regarded. Uh, professor continues, can't believe how fast we are approaching the end of the series. Me neither, Professor. We're, we're on the home stretch here. Keep up the good work, Luke, and keep them stomping. Thank you, as always, Professor. Always appreciate your thoughts and feedback on Ultraman. Overall, The Forbidden Words, it's a superlative episode of the series. To me, one of the must-watch episodes of the series. Mephilus is one of the best enemies which Ultraman has ever faced. Uh, the story is thought-provoking and creative. 
Sometimes these more experimental episodes end up being a little strange in the final product, but that is absolutely not the case here. This one gets a very strong recommendation. Now, if you would like to watch The Forbidden Words again, you can check it out on Blu-ray from Mill Creek, or it can be streamed with ads at Shot Factory TV. And, as I said, is included on the Movie Spree streaming service if you have that Blu-ray or bought it digitally before the Movie Spree storefront was determined to be no longer profitable. So once again, I throw it to you, the listener. Have you seen The Forbidden Words? What do you think about Mephilus? What's your take on the reading of this as Christian allegory? Do you think uh, Mephilus' plan is going to work? At some point, is he going to find someone to agree to give him the earth? Let me know what you think. Write me, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. We can talk about it here on the show. All right, we're going to take a quick break and come back to close out the episode right here on Earth Destruction Directive. There's something like 115,000 English language podcasts in the world, and no doubt hundreds of them are aimed at the comic book genre. There are sci-fi comic podcasts. Horror comic podcasts. War comic podcasts! But do you know what we need? You guys crazy enough to combine those fields and make a podcast of their very own? Yes. It's the answer to a question no one asked, so that's why we are answering it. Such a gaping hole in the podcast landscape must be filled post-haste. Did you really just use the word post-haste? The Weird Warriors podcast covers the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. Along the way, we'll also check out other horror and war comics published by DC, Marvel, Charlton, and any other targets that may present themselves to us. I have the war books, and he has the horror books. So if you're ready to take a nice, relaxing look at the hell of war in comic book form from the age of the caveman to the distant future, then report for duty by subscribing to the Weird Warrior Podcast, brought to you by the Brothers Flea, wherever fine podcasting provisions are issued. Vampires. Aliens. Dinosaurs. Alien dinosaurs. There's something for everyone. General Sherman said war is hell, but do you know what else is? weird for our purposes yes so tune in to the weird warrior podcast today do it that's an order yes sir don't call me sir i work for a living but we're not getting paid for this Dang. well i'm max and i'm rich and we're going to be bringing you the weird warriors podcast where we will promise to make war no more All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And now it's time for a little bit of listener feedback. If you would like to get in touch with the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You can also reach me on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or Discord. Just listen to the outro, and we'll have the information on how to get in touch with the show. So our email comes from Jimmy from NASA. Jimmy! Jimmy! How is it going, Jimmy? And Jimmy writes, Gorath! The prequel to The War in Space? Jimmy writes, What's up, Luke? Besides Outer Space, of course. I know Nate warned you that I'd write, so here I am. It's been a while, hasn't it? I'll never forget surprising you with an I'm-not-quite-dead-yet email shortly after you covered The War in Space a few years ago. Being Nate's intrepid producer since then has kept me busy. But someone has to fact-check that know-it-all, right? Well, hey, you know, Jimmy... You know, Nathan, Nathan talks a good game, but I know you, you're behind the scenes. You know, a good producer is, uh, is worth their weight in gold. So I, I know you keep him on the straight and narrow, man. I, I get it. Believe me. Sometimes I wish I had a producer to keep me on the straight and narrow. I'm out here freestyling on my own. 
Uh, Jimmy continues. Anyway, I heard you give me another shout on your Gorath episode. I've been listening with Nate as he binges EDD during Christmas break here on the island. It's funny that you mentioned the Mysterians and Balron and battle in outer space, it's easy for me to say, in relation to Gorath and the war in space. As you may recall on the Monster Island Film Vault episode you guessed it on for Battle in Outer Space, Mysterians, that film, and War form a pseudo-trilogy. Battle was at one point going to be a sequel to the Mysterians, and War was going to be a sequel to Battle. That's wilder than that one time I ran through a Japanese bathhouse to escape a space beast man and forgot my towel. I, I, you know, first off, who hasn't been there? Am I right? Am I right? Secondly, um, yeah, th those, they, they seem like they should be a series because they sort of are like a meta series, but they seems like they could have made them into a, a series and actually put some continuity between them. But you know, now they probably would be a series, but you know, in the Showa era, it's like, it was a series, but we didn't need to have the continuing elements. You know, the first rule of franchise, don't talk about franchise, keep everything vague enough the audience will catch up, right? I mean, that's how it goes. Uh, Jimmy continues, but there is another connection. There's a fan theory that the war in space is a sequel to Gorath. How? Because the moon is destroyed in Gorath, and the moon is never seen in the war in space. As someone who's worked at NASA, hence my moniker, I would hardly call that evidence especially since I've visited the moon several times, so I know it's quite intact. But I've also encountered Gorath once. Talk about Lovecraftian horror. It's one of many experiences from my storied life I'm still recovering from. I'll tell you all about meeting Gorath next time you visit the island. Have a happy 2023. Sincerely, Jimmy from NASA, Crane. Uh, Jimmy, first off, thank you very much for writing in. Always good to hear from you, man. Glad you're doing well out there in the island with Nate. Um, as far as that fan theory, you know, I've heard, I'm not going to lie, I've heard dumber fan theories. Most of them on the internet, and most of them involving uh, the MCU. Um, because I think a lot of people who come up with fan theories for the MCU don't read comics. And then it's like, well, okay, we've already covered this sort of thing. But anyway, that notwithstanding, I guess there's nothing saying that the war in space can't be a sequel to Gorath. There's nothing that I don't think specifically contradicts Gorath in the war in space. They are very, though, Gorath is kind of the outlier from the other ones we've talked about in that it's trying to be more hard science fiction, whereas the others kind of lean more towards space opera. So I can, that I could see it being a stumbling block, but you know, again, there, there's worse headcanons that I've heard than that, you know, Gorath happens and then sometime down the road, the war in space happens. I'd be willing to accept that. I mean, like I said, you never do see the moon. I do wonder what not having the moon long-term would do to the climate and the, you know, tidal patterns and gravity on Earth. But, you know, the war in space has other things to worry about. It's like, we've we got to get a ship where they, they shoot fighters out like a revolver, chamber on a revolver. So, you know, we don't got wartime to worry about ecology or anything like that. Anyway, Jimmy, thank you very much for writing in. Always glad to hear from you. And uh, like I said, keep Nate straight out there because Lord knows he needs it. Am I right? So social media love, likes, shares, retweets, thumbs ups, all that good stuff. For the last episode came from Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us. The Trekker Talk podcast. That's uh, Darren and Ruth, the uh, kind and lovely Sutherlands. Derek, Derek WC from the Fan Holes podcast. My brother, Jason Giaconetti. Kirk Spencer, Big Five Army. 13 AM Games. Hey, we covered their game and they gave us a like. Check it out. Brorad, the Telltale Mind. Billy D, aka Doc Strange. Jason Wilder. 
the Grind Bin Podcast, Common Rider Double A. Hey, the aforementioned Nathan Marchand and Jimmy from NASA, together they are, the Monster Island Film Vault, Crystal Lady Jessica, the Henshin Men Podcast, the Power Trip Podcast, aka the Two Man Power Trip Podcast, we all know that's what I call it, uh, Professor Allen, Damon Threat, Gunhead Candy, Chuck Rodriguez, Tim Elliott, Chris Mounts, Mr. Lomax, Gene Gene, the Podcasting Machine, Hendrix, Brian Severe, Samuel L. Morant, and John Vanover. Thank you very much for all the love and feedback on social media. Definitely appreciate that. Um, you know, helps get the word out of the show. I say it all the time. You know, a podcast like this is a labor of love. So uh, fans out there, you know, listeners out there, anything you can do to get word out is really, really appreciated. Again, and that's any show you listen to, whether it's Earth Destruction Directive or whatever that show is, just giving them that that retweet, giving them that like, that share on Facebook or, or what have you. If it helps one new listener find the show, it's it's totally worth it and is very much appreciated. Uh, also, like to take an opportunity, of course, to say that Earth Destruction Directive is for everyone. If you want to be part of the giant monster scene and you're interested in giant monsters, you're just learning about giant monsters. You've been a giant monster fan for longer than you can remember. And you know, your, your friends and family are sick and tired of you chewing their ear off about them. You're welcome to interact with this show in any way that makes you feel comfortable. I said, you can reach out to us on the discord. I'm going to try and put that link in the show notes again for the discord and uh, see if I can put a permalink on the YouTube as well uh, for, for the discord chat. And we've had a few uh, new listeners come in onto the discord and it's fantastic. I, I that just to chat with uh, other like-minded uh, uh, kaiju fans is, is is wonderful. But again, we're not a gatekeeping show. We're, we're a show for the people. And if you want to be part of it, you can come in and interact with us and, and uh, you know, give me feedback or whatever you want to do. So all are welcome at Earth Destruction Directive. So now we must once again be always looking forward over the horizon and what is coming next. So we're going to we're gonna go back to do some more comics. I know we did comics back... Uh, you know, to start the year, we're going to go back and do some more comics, but we're not going to do Ultraman. No, we're going to be taking a look at issues three and four of Ross Radke's Stomped. Now, you remember back during the Kickstarter for four, we did have Ross on uh, the episode to talk up the series, and we've covered uh, issues one and two. I am very excited to cover issues three and four of the this uh, very exciting indie Daikaiju comic, so please come back for that. Um, I, as I'm recording this, I just got an update from the Kickstarter that the physical rewards have started shipping for the, uh, the stomped for Kickstarter. So keep an eye on the YouTube. Maybe we'll get a package that we can open up and take a look at that. That should be a lot of fun. So hope everybody enjoyed this episode, taking a look at our two episodes of Ultraman and hope everyone will come back for our next episode, taking a look at stomped three and four. And until then, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you would like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I try to respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I will read them on the show. 
All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at 2TrueFreaks.com. You can also find the show on your favorite podcatcher. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave a review on your podcatcher of choice if you'd like. You can find me on Facebook. Just search for first name Luke, last name E-D-D. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter. Just search for the handle at LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. The theme song for this podcast is Future Gladiator by Kevin McLeod, downloaded from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun here on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one.